Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to see you. You can tell a lot about a person by how they look at the rain. I love how she said it's what makes the flowers grow. That's not what I was saying this morning. I thought, this is why I can't wash my car. This is why it floods people's basements. It makes it hard to drive. I get real grumpy when the rain comes out. So be thankful that she is the one that kicked the service off. We'd all be crying right now if it was me. Um, but listen, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter. We are going to finish this book today. We've been in 1 Peter for quite a while. Strong text today. I suspect it's going to be helpful for you as we've been walking through this text, really a letter from Peter to an exiled church that's scattered all over this big region. He has been bringing things that was helpful for them as exiles living in a place that was home but not home. And I think it's been helpful for us as well. He's talked to them about marriage, about roles, about suffering, about submission, about more suffering. He's talked to us about the government, pride, anxiety. And today he's going to talk about the devil. <laughs> got to stick that in at the very last minute. Because you, know you know they were thinking, okay, but hey, we've got some, we've got some questions about the devil. So he's going to go ahead and talk to them about Satan today. And I, that's why I think it's going to be helpful. You could probably count on one hand how many times you've heard a sermon maybe to talk about what is going on with that, especially with this passage. So let's look at 1 Peter 5. We're going to go back two verses, backtrack where we were at a little bit last week. We're going to be in verse 6. So this is going to be a big passage. It's going to do a lot of heavy lifting for us and show us Christ in a very compelling way. And he says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And now we're going to pick it up for where our passage is today. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. And then he greets them at the end. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay. Understanding the devil can be confusing. Like, what is he allowed to do? How strong is he really? I mean, do I yell at him? <laughs> do I ignore him? Can he hurt me? Does he even know I'm here? Am I supposed to care if he knows that I am here? You know, before becoming a Christian, my understanding of who the devil was was primarily informed by cartoons, music videos, horror movies. I knew before being a Christian that the devil was a personality in the Bible, right? I knew it wasn't something that culture made up, but all I had to really inform how I saw was from Hollywood. 
That's all I knew. It's probably the same for you, right? I think this is pretty common. We're immersed in a culture that takes the personality of Satan and basically reduces him to either a metaphor or a clumsy cartoon character or some handsome, seductive, misunderstood guy with a brooding look on his square jawline and a six-pack and some teen romance movie, right? This is typically what we're used to growing up with. There's a show on Fox called Lucifer, and I don't know if you've ever watched it or not. I'm not going to judge you. Don't raise your hand, though. But in this show on Fox, it's the story of Lucifer Morningstar. I'm reading the description straight off of the website, right? Who leaves his home in hell to live in L.A. (laughs) Insert joke here, right? Where he runs his own nightclub and becomes a consultant to the LAPD. If that sounds stupid to you, you need to know it did not sound stupid to about 7 million viewers who helped this show sweep at the Teen Choice Awards, right? Pretty big deal. Because Satan today is normalized and romanticized and Satan himself loves it. Because if the devil is handsome and if the devil is helpful, he's not frightening. He's not threatening. He's not someone you need to be sober and watchful for by any means, right? See, when it comes to the devil, we are eitherly overly superstitious or we are overly substitious. Yes, that's a word, substitious, right? Or as Michael Scott says, I'm not, I am not superstitious, I'm just a little stitious, right? <laughs> and I agree with him on the office. I find myself erring when I err at looking at him, I err at being little stitious, right? I mean, knowing that he's real, But not really prizing, not really thinking about how he intersects with my average everyday life. And this loss of sobriety and watchfulness for me, that is to my hurt. It's to my hurt. Because when I read the Bible, Jesus did not minimize him. You need to know this. The devil himself is a supernatural force of tremendous evil and power. And if he had it his way and God allowed it so, he would blink his eye and vaporize us all in an instant without any second thought. He is pure fury with zero compassion. John 10 says that he has only three jobs, to steal, kill, and destroy. That's it. Those are his, that's his, that's his job description. Those are his roles. Not to consult the LAPD, not to be helpful, not to be charming and winsome, right? Not to run a nightclub. The Bible talks about Satan as a thief, as we just saw in John 10.10, a dragon, a strongman, God of this world, prince of the power of the air, angel of light, and in our passage today, a lion, a roaring lion. I think that's informative for you and me today. I think it helps draw some lines around who this biblical personality is, who this force is. You might not have known this, but right in the middle of the pandemic, about six months ago, Our zoo here in Knoxville got a new lion. Did you know that? We did. We got a new African lion. His name is Upepo, right? If you go onto the zoo's website, which is pretty cool, they talk about Upepo. This is is the description of the lion exhibit, okay? All emphases are me, not what's written. Just like house cats, it says, which are they really just like cats? Just like house cats. These kings of the jungle enjoy napping 18 to 20 hours a day. 
look for them sunning on a preferred perch, sometimes on their back with all four feet in the air. But be warned (laughs) that lions mark their territory, so be sure you are out of range when they are in close proximity. Get it? Get it? They might pee on you is what they're saying, you know. This is about as dangerous as this article, this little description makes this lion look. They refer to him and other articles as being kind of whimsical, timid. The Upepo has a great personality, right? A little lazy, but also kind of curious at the same time. (laughs) But in the ancient world, Upepo peeing on you would have been the last thing you would have been concerned about, right? If you were in a place with Upepo and there was not a moat and a bunch of bars between you and him, he'd eat your head. And now listen, that is how the ancient mind would have perceived the text like this. We hear lion, we think zoo. We hear lion, we think National Geographic or whatever we could find on YouTube. But back then, Upepo was ripping martyrs apart to a cheering crowd. A lion, very likely an African lion, is how Ignatius was killed one of the fathers of the church. He wrote this to the Romans right before his death, right before his death. He says, I am ground by the teeth of wild beasts. Come cruel tortures of the devil to assail me. Only be mine to attain unto Jesus Christ. Lions were only seen by the ancient eyes when they were there in Colosseums killing Christians. It's the only time you would have ever even really seen one. So they were terrified of lions. And Peter says, that is how the devil is. That is how he operates. Prowling lions, they typically attack whenever their victims are unsuspecting in normal routines. They catch themselves drunk in a routine with their head down, hypnotized by just the basic things that they always do. The gazelle know this, right? You've seen the videos just like I have. We all grew up on them. It's the gazelle that's drinking from the water, or he's dorking around with the other gazelles, not paying attention. Because in a flat-out 100-meter dash, the gazelle wins. But it's when the gazelle is unsuspecting. It's when he is kind of lost in his routine that that the lion comes and snatches him up. And this is how it is for you and me. Instead of finding you and me watchful with a deep sobriety to us, he finds us drunk with our own routine. In fact, if he is a metaphor to you, a cartoon character to you, he is happiest. Because if you aren't watching, you aren't resisting. And if you aren't resisting, you are being devoured. He was no metaphor to Christ. Jesus, in fact, says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. He says this in 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he would rejoice before his disciples whenever he says in Luke 10, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heaven. But listen, being cast down and the enemy being handed a shot clock, he he doesn't have much time left, that's just going to make him more furious. It's just going to make him more furious more formidable, he only exists to steal your kids, to steal your hopes, your marriage, your job, to destroy your sanity, to destroy your relationships, to destroy your body. He only exists to do all of those things. And when he is done, then he would kill you. That's what he exists to do. And he knows his time is coming to an end. And so like a tired boxer, he's just throwing haymakers. 
because he knows he's just about done. But listen, your danger is not being helpless before this kind of an enemy. Your danger is failing to resist this kind of enemy whenever you're drunk in routine. That's the problem. Don't be scared. Be sober. Don't cower. Be watchful. That's how Peter would speak to you and me today, right? Because the opposite of being watchful and being sober is being drunk with a spiritual drowsiness, which I can find in in my life often, right? Where I'm not really looking, so I'm not really seeing, and therefore I'm not really resisting. The opposite of sober watchfulness is just this life of collapsing into the day, where we are hypnotized by routine, and the only difference between our Tuesday and our Thursday is absolutely nothing, There's no difference. Life just becomes this thing of Netflix, trying to figure out TikTok, trying to figure out retirement, hoping we don't screw the kids up and hoping we find a job. It is not totally miserable. It becomes this accidental life where we don't see a cosmic war in the background, where we don't perceive that there is a strategy to pull us down. We usually talk in terms of God has a plan for my life, and he does, and that's a different sermon. But you need to know that the enemy is not without a plan for you. He's not. He knows your issues. He knows where you veer off course. He knows what are the sensitive hot spots for you. He knows what your history is. He knows what your past is. He also has a plan for you. And a spiritually drunk life is one where we don't see a fight. We don't see a mission. We have no resistance because there's no lion prowling, no city to love. And I'm telling you right now, Satan loves this. He loves this. There's nothing wrong with routine. I'm a fan of routine. My life has had a lot of fruit in it because of rigid routine. I'm a routined guy. But if I am drunk on routine and get bored, it can make me drop my guard. Resistance, on the other hand, requires an active determination and a confrontation. It requires both of those and a sober watch. We have to be watchful. But for what? What are we looking for? When it says be watchful, what are we watching for? A boogeyman? What, what, what is it supposed to look like? Here's the quick and dirty answer to what we're watching for. Our own hearts. The devil will do a lot of things, but primarily the biggest tool in his hand is our own sin. Our own hearts. Because we've been sinning since the beginning, and we make idols with our own hearts. We worship things. We carry sin with us, and we give the enemy plenty of material to work with. Brilliant pastors and scholars before me have likened it to saying our sin is the piano and the devil is the player. But where does the music come from? The Bible insists that the devil and our sin are bound together. Okay? They're bound together. I mean, just look back a few verses and he's targeting pride and anxiety. That's what he says in verse 6. Humble yourselves. Why is he saying that? Because he's talking to proud people. He says God opposes the proud. If you, if you are proud, God is opposing you right now. And then he goes straight into saying, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. And then he starts speaking to the anxious, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Listen, don't imagine Peter is just randomly swapping topics, right? I mean, we all know people that do that, right? They're talking about sports, and then they switch into Korean barbecue, and where do you get your breaks done? And they just go from topic to topic to topic. I'm like, whoa, whoa, slow down. I don't even know where you're at. I'm trying to catch up. They can get like nine topics in four seconds. That's not what Peter is doing here, okay? 
What we do is we modularize how we read the Bible. By we'll look, what I mean is we look at a conversation and we will pluck a passage out and hold it separately as if it does not belong to that conversation. But Peter is having a conversation right here with us. And he's discussing how anxiety and pride become tools in the hands of a prowling lion. How they become piano strings that are plucked by our very real enemy. To deal with the devil, we have to deal with our sin. We deal with our sin. So to the superstitious, don't peek fearfully around every corner for the boogeyman. It's mostly in your heart. It's mostly in your heart. There is a Puritan from the 1600s. His name is William Grinnell. He's best known for his um, work called A Christian in Complete Armor. It's actually broken down into three volumes. It's over 1,000 pages. Our first pastoral and planting residency, we had everybody read it, all 1,000 pages. They hated me for it. And all of our current residents are like, please, please don't make us read that. It is real. It's 1,000 it's pages of a Puritan. But this is what he says. He says, if men hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and they run for their life. But they carry the devil around in their very hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, you are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. So to the superstitious, your precarious place is because of the heart that you've carried with you. To the little-stitious in the room, there is a supernatural personality that might not destroy you immediately, but he is looking to destroy you. He's looking to destroy you. He's waiting for you to just get a little bit more drunk on routine, a little less watchful, a little less sober. He's fine with you not seeing the strategies. He's fine with however long it takes. Have you ever noticed when a Christian leader falls, how grotesque in public it became? And you start to wonder to yourself, what if they had caught that 10 years ago? What ended up being a broken marriage or him stealing from the church or whatever. What if they had caught that 15 years ago? You don't think the enemy was okay with that sin lying dormant and growing and growing roots and getting some tenure. You don't think that that was part of the enemy's plan until that person had the most influence before the most watching people and then snaps the hook. Just like a fisherman does. That hook has to be set. You need to hear that the enemy is fine with that hook being in your mouth for years. He's a lot more patient than we are. Although he knows his time is running out. And when it is the worst for you, and when it is the worst for those around you, you think you might be getting away with the sin because it has not manifested and destroyed your life. You need to know he will snap that hook like that. Because he's not a metaphor. He's not a cartoon character. My warning is ignore those traps at your own cost. Write him off as irrelevant at your own cost. But you can see as we look at a passage like this and we talk to the superstitious and the substitious, how this can be very difficult to balance. So let's just take a quick look at the two things that he singles out, which is pride and anxiety. Because then we can see how we become drunk on this, how we become routinized in our life. Last week we looked at pride quite a bit. And we saw that at its basement level, it's self-trust. It's a mistrust for God or a distrust rather. And it is self-trust. But it's also an allergic reaction to grace. Okay, Pride is, a, a, of many things, it is a resistance to anything that looks like the grace of God. 
For instance, there is a kind of pride that refuses to believe theologically that salvation comes by grace alone. It refuses. It cannot see it. It refuses to see self as needy, independent. It refuses to see self as insufficient. It can't get there. And when I became a Christian, it was this kind of pride that died. I, I remember like it was yesterday being in this sweaty living room in Midland, Texas. It, it just, just saying to myself, I'm a sinner and I've, I've really got nothing impressive about me. And unless God rescues me right now, I stand a doomed man. I've tried to be sufficient. I've tried to be strong. I've tried to earn God's approval. And I just need rescue. That pride had to die. I, I gave up trying to be good on my own. And by the way, if this is you or you're watching online and you are far from Christ and this is the kind of pride that you carry with you, I don't care how free you feel without the restraint of God on your life. The Bible's very clear that you are not unrestrained. You're just following a different path. You're following someone else's strategy for you. It says this in Ephesians 2, the second half of that verse, that we are before Christ following the course of this world. You think you're choosing where you're going. You're following a course. You were restrained into that course. Following, it says again, the prince of the power of the air. So you're not unrestrained. You're not free after all. You're restrained. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of mind. We're not even free to do anything above what our flesh demands that we do. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of that says you are anything but free without God. But then it pivots this passage in Ephesians and it says, but God, which might be the two most valuable words in your Bible right there. That we are, are such a way, found in such a way, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So if life and freedom are what you are after, it's going to be through the gospel's power of unselfing you, pulling you out of your own sufficiency and showing you how much of need you have. Freedom is when you drop pride and enjoy grace. But there is a second kind of pride, and I think it might capture more of us than even the first. And that's that even after salvation, we find ourselves maybe trying to pay restitution for what God has done. Because it can't be that easy. Or trying to maybe increase our stock price, making ourselves look more lovable by our own behavior. We could definitely catch ourselves doing this, and we have to be watchful for this reversal of grace. By the way, this is why Paul says in Galatians 1 to a young church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Why is he astonished and what is so different? It's not like they turned into some satanic church and they all went out and got cloaks and burnt candles and did weird things in the dark. It's not that. They, it's, it's, they just they said that Jesus wasn't sufficient. They did all the Christian stuff and looked Christian and probably read from the Bible, but they said Jesus was not enough. So we have to add some things to make it more sufficient. That we, in fact, we, in fact, can improve how much God loves and likes and adores us by what we do. 
See, the devil loves to play this piano string because it puts us in opposition to God for sure, but then we can't enjoy grace. Cannot. We choke on it. We usually choke on grace because we feel it's too easy or we're too terrible. Certainly God couldn't do anything with someone like me. Seriously, I'm terrible. I mean, what kind of good God would receive somebody terrible like me? It can't be this easy. But this is what builds a legalist. Because if you're busy resisting the grace in your own life, you will not be able to extend grace to other people in their life. You can't do it. You, you can't be a dispenser of grace, extending grace, if you can't receive it. If you can't just say, I'm needy and thankful, and I'm a recipient of something that I don't deserve. Man, the enemy loves this. I think the roaring lion roars loudest when he takes creatures of grace and empowers them to be Pharisees and legalists who are just unhappy with grace, cannot enjoy it. So friends, listen, if this is you, to be watchful, to be sober, is to treasure and savor the grace of God for your life every day and repeatedly throughout the day, over and over and over and over, reminding yourself all the time that God's love for you is not influenced by your performance. And not just once, not just in the morning with your devotional time, but all day long. Reminding yourself that on your worst day, God does not hug you less tight than on your best day. Reminding yourself that favor found you when you were unfavorable. That he gave you mercy when you were very unmerciful to others. That he gave you grace totally despite you even though you were ungraceful. And you've got to remind yourself in different words, at different times, with different pictures and different scriptures, in different moods, with different times. You have to do it over and over and over again as you savor and treasure the truth that God has given you. That is the only way to be sober and watchful for whenever you turn into a legalist. And then he pivots to anxiety a little bit which is still a refusal to see God for who he is. But instead of God being graceful, the anxious person refuses to see how much God loves and cares for us. That's what anxiety is. It's a refusal to believe that we are safe and we are thought for. Now, I was very vulnerable last week and said I am the president of the Anxiety Club. And if you've been a friend of mine for any amount of time, you know that this would be the direction I, I lean. I'm not known to be an angry man, but I could, I could be a, an anxious man. And I'll tell you, the devil loves to play this piano string most because it makes us cowards. It creates a cowardice in us because we're self-protecting ourselves from danger. Right? I think about my kids, though, and how it would make me feel as a dad if they were just losing sleep because of their anxiety. And that they just couldn't have peace. They couldn't be creative. They couldn't be winsome. They couldn't take a deep breath or rest or celebrate because they were scared that I was going to let them down or break my promise to them. How that would make me feel. After all I've done. After all I've done from the first second they were born to right now. How it would make me feel 
if they were ripping their bodies apart with stress and could not sleep because of a fear that I wasn't going to hold up my end of the bargain. And yet I know as an anxious person, as an anxious Christian, it's exactly what I'm doing. It's exactly what I'm doing. Anxiety is an overconfidence in our own strategies. And it's a rapid and prevalent distrust for God's sovereignty. And when I talk to, to, to anxious people, one of the things that I know to be true about how I feel is that anxiety is the feeling that we must be in total control of everything around us, yet it is the acknowledgement that we are not in control of anything. I feel like I must be in control, and yet I can, <laughs> I can readily see, honestly, that I am not in control. And because those two things are both true about how I feel, I, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. Here's a warning from one anxious person to maybe another anxious person. If you treat anxiety as a condition alone and not a sin, you'll never grow from it. Because you'll never have a humility for it. Right? This is how it's easy for us to be drunk and routine and not sober and not watchful with our anxiety. We just continually to think, it, we, we, just, we always think that it's a condition, something that happens to us, that we're victims of it. Right? It's just my personality. Right? And I get that. It's, it's my personality too. But isn't even our personality stained by sin? Of course it is. I mean, here's something good about the anxious person. You catch an anxious person on a good day, they are assassins at seeing problems come before they get to you. They're great at debugging issues before the issues come to roost, right? This is what anxious people do great. I, I love having anxious people on staff because I can't always see all the problems, but if they can see the problems, we can get in front of them, and then there's no problem. So anxious people are really good at seeing smoke on the horizon. They know there's a fire. They prepare for the fire. That's an anxious person on a good day when they're not anxious. You catch an anxious person on a bad day, and there's smoke everywhere, and there might not even be fire. Might not even be any fire. And this anxiety that keeps us from sleeping, that keeps us from trusting, all it does is declare that God is not good. God's a liar. He's not going to think for me. He's not going to care for me. So I've got to step in and I've got to take control. Let me tell you, that's a sin. That is a sin. It declares God a liar and not worthy of our trust. And as a door prize, we rip apart our physique. We rip apart the fabric of who we are because it even goes against the grain of how we were biologically created. So what do we do? We cast our anxieties as far as we possibly can. And that too, just like with the prideful person, takes repetition. It takes repetition. An anxious person builds a well-worn path to the gospel if they want to grow. A well-worn one. I'll find all the time where I look at my lack of control over a situation. And then I look at God's total control as most exemplified by the fact that the tomb was empty. Where it looked like everything was out of control, he could not have been more in control. I look at that and I say, I am out of control. God is in control. And then I repent. I trust. And then I repeat. Sometimes 50 times in the same hour I'm having to do this. Like I said, it's a well-worn path. Don't let anxiety be the soundtrack of your life. It will make you cowardly. It will make you cowardly. Listen, there are risk-filled adventures for all of us in the room. And I know we all different have different risk tolerances. 
But there's adventure for all of us. But let me tell you what the devil, the roaring, prowling lion, loves to see you and me standing still because we are scared that God is not God. He's not God. The enemy loves this. So today, if the ground beneath you is shifting, I agree with Grinnell here. He is setting you in a precarious place. This battlefield of trust that God is there. He is present. He loves you. He is in control, and he is trustworthy. You know, I, was, I had a hard night of sleep a couple weeks ago, and one of the things I've done, you know, I do all the predictable things that you do when you have a hard night's sleep. But one of the things, you, you know how sometimes you wake up because you ate something bad or you drank coffee too late, and sometimes you wake up because you just have the residue of, the, of, of a broken creation on you. And as I woke up and I paced around the house, I journaled. And this, is, this has been very helpful for me, and I would submit it to you if you are someone that struggles with either pride or anxiety, but something that keeps you up. And just write it out, this pivot, and the freedom it brings. This is what I wrote down the other day. All right, I've tried my best to fix and control this, and all I'm getting is a fistful of thorns and thistles. God, I simply don't trust you. I have sinned. I have overconfidence in myself. I can't trust you here. And if I can't trust you here, the devil wins. He won't beat me today by cancer or by tragedy, but by the anxiety I'm carrying in my heart right now. Help me trust that you are here. Help me trust that you are in control like you were at your son's tomb. You've never been out of control. You are God I am not, it is well with my soul. And then when I was done writing it down, I wrote it down again using different words. And then when I was done writing it down again, I got up and I prayed. Then I would find a psalm and I would sing and I would cry and then I would go to bed. So goes growth if you're anxious. Do anything else and you're not being watchful, you're definitely not being sober and you will be devoured. I've prayed this so many different ways and so many different times, but I do believe this is what spiritual sobriety and watchfulness looks like. And it's another day that the lion doesn't devour. It's definitely another day I'm not going to be a coward. Right? So go ahead and stand up with me. And what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to land this plane, land this book, really, over communion. Let me just explain if you're a guest here. We do take communion. We don't dip bread in, in juice. We use these little rip and sip cups. Randy's bringing them in right now. So if you would like one as a Christian and you're here, just raise your hand. If you don't have one, you didn't grab one coming in, and he will give you one. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to feel chained to do this so that other people will see you differently. I just submit that you consider Christ and not this, this uh, memorial for us. As I usually say, this is not a magical moment, but it is a supernatural one for us. It's the remembrance of a banquet that Christ has had with his closest disciples. And it's also a memorial of a broken body and spilt royal blood from a cross. And it's also a looking forward with a celebration in our hearts to another banquet that's waiting for all of us. Where the Father is our host where we remember how he defanged our lion forever, how he will not roar over us, 
There will be a day where the prowling stops. There's going to be a day where the anxiety stops. There will be a day where the pride stops. We get to celebrate in this moment grace forevermore. Grace with layers on it. Grace that does not get boring or stale or theologically just put on a shelf to gather dust, but an existence where we experience the beauty of what God has done anew every single second from that second on forevermore. Jesus was stolen and killed and destroyed so we would not be. He was consumed so we would not be. And now we are free to trust and be unselfed and courageous. It says this in the very last two verses, 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, Peter finishes, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen. He's not, no more steal, killing, and destroying. We're seeing the reverse of that right here. You will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's go ahead and take this. I don't actually have one of those. Does anyone have, can you toss me one from back there? He's not even out here. I'll just do this. All right, this will be my cue. All right, and then you'll know to go ahead and, all right. Father, we thank you for being good to us. And as we take this communion, we do so in deep remembrance and with deep celebration and with deep thankfulness. And we recognize that the bread that we're taking, this wafer, it's symbolic. But it's a moment that we commune with you. It's a moment of intimacy where we don't just remember, but we appreciate and savor the deep work that you did for us by being cracked on a cross to give us grace. So Lord, we take this bread in your remembrance. Go ahead and take the bread. And then Father, we have this juice as a symbol and emblematic of the blood that was spilt, but it's blood that covers our sin. It's blood that covers our sin. And it's blood that covered our sin because we could not cover our sin with better behavior. You caught us insufficient. That's how you catch us as villains. We're unable to save ourselves. Yes, we need your rescue. There's nothing good about us when you find us. And then afterward, the only thing good about us is that your spirit is alive and in us as you groom us to look more like you. So, Father, as we take this juice, we do so saying we're insufficient and you are totally sufficient, that you are in control even if we are totally out of control, and you are good when we need the deepest good. So we take this juice in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the juice. And, Father, as we finish this out, just want to ask, maybe even beg for your spirit to deal with our pride. I, I know I'm at a place theologically where I believe that salvation comes by grace and through faith. I, I believe that. But if I, if I was to be honest, I still catch myself trying to prove to you that I was worth it. I still catch myself trying to prove that, that maybe I could be liked a little bit more or get more favor by the way I behave. I forget that I'm a son. I just forget that I'm a son and I put myself back in a servant's shoes. 
So Lord, we pray that you would deal with the prideful heart in all of us that still thinks that what you did is not 100% sufficient enough to really get the deepest pleasures of salvation. And Father, for the anxious in the room, Lord, it takes <laughs> nothing short of the Holy Spirit to convince us as anxious people that you're in control. If the mountains quake and crumble and the oceans rise and swallow cities, there, there is nothing that will convince us that you are in control besides your truth in the word and your Holy Spirit in our hearts. So Lord, I just say that even as anxious people, we say we're sinning and we need your power to grow through this. It's not just a condition. So Lord, we pray for these things as we finish this book about being exiles in a place that's not really our home. That way, being firmly planted in a different kingdom, we could finally be useful for this place here. I could finally be useful for Knoxville if Knoxville is not my forevermore. I could be useful for my family if my family's not all I've got. I could be useful with my finances if it's not the, the, the small Jesus that saves me. Lord, help us be exiles that are functional, helpful, and extensions of your good news to the city like this. Lord, we love you. So when we celebrate, we're doing so in remembrance of what you've done and thankfulness for what you've done and in hope of what you're doing. So we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.